If you have your Bibles, open with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We have been walking through the Gospel of Mark one verse at a time. And we have seen again and again the obvious point that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we will see that again this morning, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, He fell at his feet, imploring him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, Arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. And it is perfectly profitable and useful for us as a church. Amen? Amen. Joseph Lister Joseph Lister was a man who followed the work of Louis Pasteur very closely. Louis Pasteur was the founder of germ theory. And Joseph Lister very much believed in Louis Pasteur's germ theory 
at a time when to do so was less than advantageous for one's career. Think about the idea of a million tiny little things that you can't see that live on your body that can make you sick and die. Well, at a time before the micro microscope existed, such an idea would have seemed more like something out of a children's book than science. But Lister believed in this theory, and he even began to apply it in his own profession as a surgeon in Glasgow. He started using carbolic acid to clean away the microbes on the surgical instruments that he would use as he would perform his op operations. Well, around the same time that Lister was advancing his theory of antisepsis, there was a man named Charles Guiteau. And Charles Guiteau was plotting the death of the president, the newly elected president, James A. Garfield. One day, as James Garfield was preparing to board a train, Charles Guiteau approached him and opened fire, shooting him shooting four times, but only hitting him with one bullet. As the president lay on the floor of the train station, it only took a few minutes before the first physician arrived on the scene. And the first physician to arrive was a black man. And this was the first black physician to ever treat a president. And he actually had the right idea how to treat the president. But another physician showed up within a few more minutes and immediately jammed his finger into the president's bullet hole. He thought nothing of it to roll the president over on his side, stick his dirty little finger up there with no concern for the pain of the man containing the bullet. They're on a germ-laden floor of a train station. The president never stood a chance. He suffered for well over two months before finally dying of sepsis. The autopsy of the president's body showed that the bullet had deposited itself into the fatty part of the pancreas, which means that it would have healed just fine. It didn't hit any major organs. It didn't mess up any arteries. It would have been just fine had that physician not jammed his dirty little finger into the bullet hole wound. It was the infection that killed the president, not the bullet. The treatment of the physicians was worse than the original injury itself. Now, Bad medicine doing more harm than good to patients is nothing new. 1900 years before the president's body was consumed by infection, there was also a woman who was treated by physicians. And these physicians harmed her more than they helped her. Like her and so many others, the doctors could not fix her. Well, not only could they not fix her, but while she was under the care of these physicians, she became impoverished spending all that she had on these physicians. That's something I think many of us can identify with. Yet her body continued to fail her. Let's look at it again together in Mark 5, 24 through 26. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather worse. Imagine 12 years of suffering with no relief. Some of you may not have to imagine. Some of you have probably suffered some infirmity or another for years and years on end. And if you've never suffered for years and years on end, you may not be able to understand how desperate a person begins to feel when they have to endure nonstop suffering. And I think this woman was pretty desperate. 
as she began to hear the rumblings about this man, Jesus, as the rumors of his ability to heal began to reach her ears, she probably thought, what do I have to lose? I'm going to go find this man. Maybe I can touch this man, and maybe just touching this man will heal me of my diseases. So verse 27 tells us that that's exactly what she did. Have you ever heard of a jailhouse religion? It's what police officers and correctional officers and probation officers and uh, convicts and ex-convicts alike call the phenomenon of someone finding Jesus in jail. And they usually use this term negatively, like, oh, oh, Jim's got that jailhouse religion. And they talk about it negatively because it usually ends up being the case that what they thought was religion was no real religion at all. As soon as Jim or Jenny or whoever it is is released back into the environment, into freedom, they immediately pick up the pipe or the bottle or whatever their vice happens to be. I myself came to Christ in a moment of desperation. And at times, people have tried to make me feel bad about that. Said things like, well, well, as long as that's what works for you, you know, whatever you need to get through life, as if Jesus is a crutch that I need in order to survive. And sadly, uh, that's truer than they know. But I know plenty of Christians who have had amazing lives, who have never done drugs or alcohol, never been arrested, smart, good grades in school, make a lot of money, and they still trust in Jesus. They're still desperate for him. But meditating on this theme of desperation and how desperation can lead us to faith, how desperation can lead us to be more open to God, I think it's biblically sound for us to say that desperation is a good thing. It's a good thing, and it's an absolute must. It leads us to come to the end of ourselves. It takes us to the place where we finally start looking outside of ourselves for hope, outside of ourselves for answers, and we start looking in another direction. And I think that that's what we see happening in today's story. Look at verse 28. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Well, that sounds pretty desperate. And praise be to God, this woman's desperation has led her to reach out to Jesus. But before we rejoice too much, we should consider a couple things in relation to desperation and faith. The first thing that we should consider is this. Desperation can lead us to be more open, but that can be just as dangerous sometimes. When I was incarcerated, I met a young man who was a Muslim, and he became a Muslim while he was in prison. And as I continued with prison ministry after I became a Christian, I met plenty of young men who became Muslims. Uh, I also knew some people who became part of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is distinct from Muslim. But they did that because they didn't want to reach out to the quote-unquote white man's religion. So they wanted to go the black man's path. I also know prisoners who just consume tons and tons of self-esteem books, self-help seminars, whatever they can do to kind of boost their self-esteem and get back on the right track. What you see here is that these people, in their desperation, they're turning to false gods, or they're turning to warlords disguised as prophets, or they're turning to people with a whole bunch of initials after their name that doesn't really matter at all in eternity. You see that their desperation has led them to be willing to trust in someone or something outside of themselves, 
but the things that they're trusting in can't actually save them. Which leads us to the next point of consideration. It's the object of our faith that saves us, not merely our faith. This woman was desperate, and in her desperation, she turned to Jesus. In faith, she reached out and touched the hem of his garment. Look at verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. But it wasn't just her faith that saved her. It was the object of her faith. Her faith led her to reach out to Jesus. She didn't fully understand who Jesus Christ was. She didn't fully understand what he had come to accomplish. She didn't even understand how the process of healing was actually going to work. In all reality, this woman probably had a superstitious approach to this healing, as was common in ancient days. She probably thought touching his, him, the hem of his garment might transfer some kind of juju from him to me that will heal my body. But we know that's not necessarily what happened. And that's precisely the point. It's not the woman's faith. It's the object of her faith. The woman has an imperfect faith. It's a true faith, but it's imperfect. But this imperfect and true faith is trusting in a perfect object of faith, Jesus Christ. If the quality of her faith was what made the healing dependent, or if the quality of her faith made the healing possible, then she would never be healed. If the quality of our faith is what made us saved, none of us would ever be saved. The weakest faith in the strongest name of Jesus Christ can save. But the strongest faith in a false God can never save. It can never heal. Point number three. Jesus is not content to let this woman's faith be a private faith. Jesus is not merely interested in dispensing with miracles. You know, yeah, I'm going to do some earthly good over here. I'm going to do some temporal good over there. And don't worry about thanking me. You got your miracle. Have a nice day. That's not what Jesus is about. So, Jesus, after he notices that the power has gone out of him, he begins to look for the girl in the crowd. Look at verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Now, I love the disciples' response to this question because it's sarcastic, and sarcasm is my love language. The disciples, I mean, there is a crowd around Jesus, and Jesus goes, oh, I think somebody touched me. Hey, find out who it is. The disciples go, look at all these people. How, how can you expect us to find who touched you? Everyone is touching you. The crowd is pressing in on you. The crowd must have been fairly large for the woman to kind of disappear into it almost immediately after touching Jesus. But Jesus is resolute. He's not just going to let her disappear into the crowd. He keeps looking for her. Look at verse 32. And he looked around to see who had done it. Now, in English, this is a little understated. The, the verb there, he looked around, it implies that it was a constant, heavy, intense looking he was going around the crowd trying to find who the person was who touched him. Notice that Jesus is just as persistent in trying to find the woman who touched him as the woman was in trying to get to Jesus in the first place. 
So why is Jesus so persistent in trying to find this woman? Well, I think it's because he wants something from her. And I think what he wants from her is a public profession of her private faith. Look at verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, notice that the woman is afraid. It says that she's trembling. Well, why is she afraid? Why is she trembling? I think it's the same reason that many people in the congregation today would be afraid and would tremble if I asked you to come up here and share your testimony. It's a hard thing to stand up and speak of your shame in public. But I think that's exactly what we see here. Jesus is calling this woman to share her testimony with him in the sight of all. Which is likely the only reason that Peter knows any of the details of the story. Remember, the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, was given to us by Mark, but Peter is the one who told that information to Mark. And Peter was likely standing right next to Jesus as this woman, tearfully, trembling, told Jesus every last detail of her life, of what had happened. That's the only reason that he knew that she had this disorder for 12 years. Now, let me just take a moment to talk about the Bible. Guys, stuff like this doesn't exist in novels, in sagas of the ancient world. Little minute details like this don't drive the story forward at all. In other kind of sagas from the ancient world, these little details don't exist. The only reason that details like this exist is because this is an actual eyewitness account. And so here we have the account of this woman who suffered for 12 years. And consider her. Consider the way that she was physically unwell, but also socially and religiously, she was isolated. Isolated due to the blood disease, which would have kept her out of the temple life. It would have forbidden her from celebrating feasts or making offerings. If she was married, she couldn't partake in the joy of sex. If she wasn't married, she would likely never be able to get married with this disease. Think about how she must have been suffering. When we read this, we might just think she was suffering physically, but as we all know, Hospitals are some of the saddest places on earth because we are whole human beings. And when we suffer physically, we also suffer spiritually and emotionally. And this woman suffered for 12 years. Consider that. And she shares all of this with Jesus in the crowd. She endures the humiliation of bearing all in the presence of God and everyone. Before this woman can share in the glory of Christ's healing, she must share in the humility of Christ. But this humiliation wasn't the end of the story for her, was it? Because after she tells of the years and the years of suffering and everything that she had gone through, she also told of Jesus' power to heal her. Because she tells of the power of Christ to heal her, Jesus gives her hope. She comes before Christ and everyone. She says, I was hopeless. And then I came into contact with Christ and he changed everything. Brothers and sisters, that's all of our testimonies. Uh, My testimony has been shared in this church a lot. Uh, Christians in this area kind of love my testimony. Guns, drugs, gangs, violence. It's all very exciting. All very crossing the switchblade. But you know what? I one time heard a guy who had a similar testimony say, if you want to know my testimony, read Ephesians 2. Dead in sin, made alive together with Christ. This woman's testimony is all of our testimony. 
We were suffering. We were experiencing isolation and shame. But when we placed faith in Jesus Christ, his power made us new. And now we are under obligation to share that with the world. And this is why baptism is so important and entirely not optional. In baptism, we stand up before Christ. We stand up before the church. And we stand up before the world and we say, Christ has healed me. Baptism is where our faith goes public, has said one pastor. It's our public profession of our private faith. And let's just be honest. Just for a moment. Some of us, we want to have faith like this woman's faith. We want to just kind of believe in Jesus, have faith, get access to some of the benefits of that faith, and then kind of creep back into the crowd. Just drift kind of back into obscurity. Be a wallflower of sorts. But Jesus will not accept such a faith. The faith that Jesus demands is not a faith that exists in some dark corner, in obscurity. It's a faith that's willing to stand up before the world and proclaim what Jesus Christ has done to save us. Later, the Apostle Paul will say, if we confess with our mouths and believe with our hearts, we will be saved. Jesus is not content with private faith. And baptism is where our faith goes public. Imagine how embarrassing it must have been for this woman to stand up before an entire crowd and talk about a blood disease. And the kind of blood disease that it is doesn't even need to be mentioned from the pulpit. But it was an embarrassing kind. But she recounts it in front of the crowd, in front of everyone. Why would Jesus demand that of her? Well, I think it's because Jesus demands that we humiliate ourselves and confess our faith in Christ and his power to heal us because it's the visible proof of the faith that we claim to have. Brothers and sisters, you should know, all of our stories are full of shame. If you belong to Christ, your story is full of shame. And if you don't think your story is full of shame, you haven't understood sin and what it was in your life. Every single one of us have to stand up and profess the shame of our sin and our rebellion against God. But then we give God glory when we talk about what Jesus did to save us from that shame. And brothers and sisters, you should never let Satan rob you of that opportunity. I worked at a church once where I shared my testimony openly and freely, only to find out later that some of the members of the church got together and wrote a private letter to the pastor about me, saying, I don't want some ex-game-banging drug dealer teaching my kids on a Sunday morning. Satan wanted to rob me of my testimony. He wanted to rob me of the opportunity to glorify Jesus Christ, He wanted to strip that away, but we must never let that happen, no matter what our story looks like, whether we're self-righteous and pharisaical and God saves us from that, or whether we're out there on the street doing drugs. We cannot let Satan rob us of our testimony. We should notice here that it's not just her confession that makes her well. Jesus says that it's, it's her faith that makes her well. But how can anyone see faith unless faith is confessed? You should also notice that when this woman confesses her faith, Jesus follows that up by giving her assurance. 
He says, your faith has made you well. And that's what church membership is, brothers and sisters. Church membership is where you come into this gathering of Christians and you say, hey, I'm a Christian. I have faith in Jesus Christ. And we as a corporate entity look at your life, the way you're living, the things you, you believe, and we say, I'm not God, but I'm pretty sure you're a Christian. So here, take our team jersey. We give you corporate assurance of your faith. And in like manner, church discipline is when we say, I have no good reason to believe that you're a Christian. So I'm going to need that team jersey back. I love Jesus' response to her. It's simple but profound. Verse 34 says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, the word that Jesus uses here for healing is sozo in the Greek. It can mean to heal, and it can also mean to save. So what do you think? Was, was the woman healed by her faith, or was she saved? Well, I think the answer is yes. Moving on. If you took the time to read the text of this sermon during the week, I want to applaud you. And I hope that all of us get into the habit of doing that. If you want to know what text I'm going to be preaching from next week, it's pretty easy, because I'm preaching right through the book of Mark. But if you did read the text for this week, you might be wondering why I started preaching in verse 25, when the story actually begins in verse 21. Now, if you didn't read the text this week, then you might not have even noticed that I began preaching in the beginning, I mean, in the middle of the story. You see, this whole ordeal of Jesus healing this woman with a blood disease, it actually takes place in the middle of a larger narrative. When the woman reaches out and touches Jesus and is healed, she actually interrupts him on his way to go heal somebody else. Well, let's read the beginning of the story together to make sure that we remember. Chapter 5, starting in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country, oh, sorry, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Now, Jairus is the new character in the story. And Jairus is not just anyone. Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue. He's significant. Notice, we don't get the name of the woman. We get the name of Jairus, the ruler. The man must have had significant social import for him to just slice through the crowd the way that he does, like a hot knife through butter approaching Jesus to make his request known. Now, this man of significant social import, he must have been a man of great dignity, the kind of man who would never run, he would simply walk. But notice the way that that dignity completely evaporates as he gets to Jesus. He falls prostrate on his knees, begging him for mercy. You guys remember the sermon from last week with the demoniac? Well, the same thing happened. The man with the demon fell at Jesus' feet, begging him for mercy. And like the woman confessing before Jesus in the crowd, Jairus is also willing to humiliate himself before Christ and everyone in the watching world. Doesn't suffering make beggars of us all? But adding to this humility, Jesus responds in verse 24. And in verse 24, he tells us that he went with him. 
whether you're a rich ruler or you're an obscure person that no one knows, Jesus will respond to your humility. Now, what could lead a man like Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, of, of social significance like this, to sacrifice his dignity the way that he does in this text? Well, I think the answer to that is pretty simple. His daughter's about to die. He's desperate. Just like the woman with the issue of the blood disease, Jairus is also completely desperate. And parents, who among us would not do the same? And more, if we thought that we could save the life of our child. Denzel Washington, one of my favorite actors, greatest actors of all time, he was in a movie called John Q. And in this movie, he is a father who goes and takes nurses and doctors hostage to try to save the life of his son. Now, while I ultimately don't agree with the decision that, John, that he made in that movie, one of the things about it is that as parents watch it, they can all identify with that father. They all say, man, I might do the same thing if I was in those shoes. I heard one man say one time that he would destroy all of heaven and earth to save the life of his child if he thought that it would actually work. The love of a parent is potent. It leads men and women to sacrifice everything, to quit jobs, to empty bank accounts, to give up kidneys and more to save the life of their children. So let's pause here and consider the gospel. You see, God gave up His Son for us. He gave up His only Son. And He didn't give up His only Son to save those who loved Him or to save those who would choose him. He gave up his son to save rebels, like you and like me. He didn't give up his son to save a superior race of his righteous creatures, but to save those who hated him and who despised him. As a matter of fact, God in his sovereignty knew that the only thing he would have to do to offer his son would be to send him down to live among sinful humans like us, and the first thing that we as sinners did when we came into contact with the Holy God was murder Him. It's one thing to give up the life of your child for a good man. It's another thing entirely to give up the perfect, spotless, holy life of your son to save rebels. But it is entirely unconceivable, out of this world, to give up the life of your eternally beautiful son to save the very people who would kill him. But that's what we see in the gospel. God gave up the life of his son to save us. I think about Patience and Bella, my little ladybugs, and I can't imagine giving them up for anything. It just it doesn't seem real. It seems impossible to me. But I know for a fact that I would never give them up for sinners like you and me. But in the gospel, God gives up his son to save us. Go back to the story. Jairus is desperate. He must have felt a tremendous sense of joy and relief when Jesus agreed to go to save his daughter. Imagine the mixture of jubilation and anxiety that must have filled Jairus' heart as he began to walk lockstep with Jesus Christ, approaching his home to save the life of his daughter that he thought was going to die. However fast they were walking, Jairus probably felt like it wasn't fast enough. Hurry up, let's go. 
I can imagine Jairus in his despair standing by the lakeside watching for the boat of Jesus to approach. Seeing a man in a boat with some other men thinking, man, please let that be Jesus. Let it be him. And then as Jesus comes off of the boat, just praying, hoping, wishing that Jesus would agree to accompany him to go to try to save the life of his daughter. And then once Jesus finally does agree to go with him, now he's thinking, oh man, I really hope this guy is everything that everyone says that he is, that he really is capable of doing the impossible, that he can save the life of my daughter. But then even if you really, really believe that Jesus can do all such things, maybe you're thinking, man, even if he is willing and able, I hope there's time. When I left from my house a couple hours ago, she was on the verge of death. And she may be this close to dying. Maybe she'll die before we get back. But as they walk towards Jairus' home, Jesus stops. He stops. The journey is at a pause. Jairus' daughter's life hangs in the balance and Jesus pauses in the middle of the journey to get back to her. But why? It's because someone touched him? Jairus doesn't understand what's taking place. He doesn't understand the dynamics at play. And then not only that, now that Jairus has, now that Jesus has been touched, he wants to find out who touched him in a crowd of God knows how many people? Jairus must have resonated with the disciples when they said, you want us to find out who touched you in this kind of crowd? Jairus must have been like, yeah, you're never going to find out. You're never going to figure out who it is. Don't worry, let's go. My daughter's dying. The disciples are flustered. Jairus is anxious. But Jesus is composed. I can imagine anger perhaps increasing in Jairus' heart, his, his pulse accelerating, his breathing growing deep and heavy like I get when I'm in traffic and I want to rip the steering wheel out of the car. Once Jesus finds the woman, perhaps Jairus is thinking, great, he found her, he got what he wanted, let's go. But Jesus stops and he has a conversation with her. And he asks to hear her, her story and not just like, all right, give me your 60-second version of what happened. He asks and he receives the whole story. If I was Jesus, excuse me, if I was Jairus, I would be tempted to throw Jesus on my back and carry him to my house. Jairus is likely on the verge of a nervous breakdown or perhaps apoplectic rage. This woman is healed. She's healed. Let's go. My daughter is dying. Who cares about her? I know I would say that. And then it happens. While Jesus is still carrying on his conversation with this woman, someone from the home of Jairus approaches and makes an announcement. Let's read it in verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now, Put yourself in Jairus' shoes. Imagine his world crumbling in a millisecond. All hope is lost. Perhaps you wouldn't believe it at first. And then maybe disbelief would turn into confusion. 
and then maybe perhaps confusion would turn into anger. I can almost see the tears streaming down Jairus' face as he wrestles through the reality that his daughter that he really had hope could be saved cannot be saved. She's dead. Healing the sick is one thing, but nobody can bring people back from the dead. I can see myself in Jairus' position. Everything in me would be fighting the urge to just scream at Jesus. If you would have hurried up, she wouldn't be dead right now. I know I would have said it. And that's why I think it's so important that we recognize something so simple but true. God's timing is not our timing. And God's purposes are not our purposes. Why can't we just hurry Jesus up? Why can't we just get Jesus in line with our schedule? We all have a contract for our lives. We have something we want to hand Jesus and get him to sign off on, moving from point A to point B to point C, all the way to the end of what we want out of life. And we want him to do it exactly when we want him to do it, how we want him to do it. But that's not... That's not the way things work with God. Not even when we're desperate. Not even in emergencies. Not even when we're hurting. Not even when children lay dying. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't answer prayer. He most certainly does. And we should pray. But I am saying that Jesus is Lord of all. And his timing is not our timing. He has plans and purposes that are beyond our understanding. But his timing is a perfect timing. Jairus wanted his daughter healed. Little did he know that he would have his daughter resurrected. I think about why Jesus allowed Amber and I to lose our first child. I say things like, you, you could have moved, Jesus, okay? You could have done something. You could have saved the baby. Why did you not do that? That's when it hits me. You see, I think that I'm God. I think that I'm like God. I think that I know what's best. I think that I'm the one who should decide who gets to live and who gets to die. I think my timing is the best timing. I fail to consider for even a second that God may have a purpose in my suffering. And then to top it all off, I judge God. I stand over the God of the universe in judgment, making myself the arbiter of what is good, right, and true. And don't I sound foolish? A story from my own life. I shared with you guys some of my testimony last week. And this is probably the last time I'm going to share something else from my life for a while. But I remember being five, maybe six years old, and I could hear my mom in the bedroom. I was in the bathroom. And I could hear her crying out, screaming my name, wanting me to come back to the bedroom. She was intoxicated. And I, I sat on the toilet in the bathroom, and I was crying, and I was praying. And I was saying, and which is strange because nobody had ever taught me how to pray that I can remember. I didn't grow up in a household where people did that sort of thing. But I said, God, help me. Save me. Protect me. 
And uh, it seemed like that night he did. My mom fell asleep, and if only temporarily, the abuse came to an end. But there were many other nights, and there were many other times, many other situations where I, I cried out to God, and I asked him to help me, to save me, and nothing happened. As an angry teenager, I never forgot those prayers. I clung onto them with a clenched fist in anger at God as I tried to prove that God didn't exist. If God was real, if he was really out there, and if he really did love me, why would he allow me to go through that? Why wouldn't he answer my prayers? Why wouldn't he protect me? I never even considered that perhaps God was using my suffering for my good. I couldn't see how suffering could be used by a good God. But God does use suffering. And God is good. And Jesus is a good shepherd. And we see Jesus being a good shepherd here. Because when he heard the bad news, he stops his conversation. He goes up to the ruler and he says, Do not fear. Only believe. Jesus is demanding the impossible of this man. How can you tell a man whose greatest fears have just been realized not to fear? How can you tell a man who's just heard the words that have ushered in the loss of all hope that he needs to believe? You might say the time for belief has passed. But isn't this just like Jesus? Doesn't Jesus demand the impossible of us? Be perfect as I am perfect. You better believe it. That is literal. Be holy as I am holy. And you better believe a holy God's standards are literally perfectly holy. Jesus demands the impossible of this man. And now as this man's world is coming apart at the seams, he hears this word. Your daughter is dead. Your daughter is dead. And then Jesus has the audacity to say, do not fear, only believe. But isn't this when Jesus is most glorified? You see, God is glorified when we believe in him and when we don't fear when things are going well, certainly. But isn't he more glorified when we believe in him, when we trust in him, when we don't fear? Even when we have every good reason to fear? When we have every perfect reason to doubt? Imagine two men. The first man, everything in his life is going fine. He's got a great family, great job, bank accounts full, Roth IRA, 401k, loaded to the gills, two-car garage, even a really great golden retriever that sits when you say sit. And he says, I don't fear God, I trust in you. Well, I think God is glorified in that. But imagine another man who's lost everything. His crops, his animals, gone. His children, killed. His health, stripped away from him. His body is covered in boils. He's a broken ash heap of a man. His wife is even so hopeless that she tells him that he should just curse God and die. Well, that man was Job. And his response to these circumstances was this. Though God slay me, yet will I trust in him. Who do you think is 
maximally glorifying God in their trust. You see, Jairus is in a situation where he can maximally glorify God in his response to suffering and to hopelessness. Now, the text doesn't tell us what Jairus says. Perhaps Jairus couldn't really say anything at all. But we do see that Jairus and Jesus, along with the three disciples, they end up at the home of Jairus, suggesting perhaps that Jairus is trying to believe, even though it's really, really hard. Brothers and sisters, I know that that's what many of our lives are like. There's no good reason to believe. We have every good reason to be afraid. But Jesus is calling us to trust in him, to believe, to not be afraid. And sometimes we may not even be able to articulate it with our mouths. We just put our head down and we try to move forward. I think such a faith is satisfactory to God. So, as they walk towards the home of Jairus, perhaps as the house is only likely barely visible, they begin to hear moaning and groaning, weeping and loud wailing and commotion that would obviously accompany the death of a child. Look at verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And then Jesus says something that leads all those present to mock him. He tells them that the girl isn't dead, that she's only sleeping. Now, so far in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen all different kinds of responses to Christ. Some thought that he was insane. Some wrote him off as a blasphemer. Some thought that he was the reincarnation of the prophet Elisha. Or excuse me, Elijah. Some hated him and plotted his death. And now, they're simply mocking Christ. But Jesus pays no mind to them, and he kicks them all out of the room as he goes into the girl. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says that the, woman, that the little girl is not dead, but that she's merely asleep? Well, later on in your New Testament, you're going to see authors use this same term. They talk about being asleep in Christ. And here's what it means. They're dead, but they will one day rise again. In the same way that a person who is asleep will rise again. Make no mistake, friends, this little girl was dead. But Jesus knew that her death was like the death of a person who's merely sleeping. He knew his power to resurrect her from the grave. And so he says she's not dead. She's merely sleeping. And Jesus raises her by the mere power of his word which is just so incredible. I mean, we've already seen so many incredible things from Jesus in the book of Mark. He is healing people. He's casting out demons. He's claiming to be the Lord of Sabbath. He's even forgiving sins. But this perhaps may be the greatest evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ up till now. Because nobody can give life but God. Not miracle workers or pseudo-miracle workers. Not nurses, not doctors, not scientists, not the Pope, not politicians. No one can give life to the dead. For all of our improvement in technology and the quality of life that we have as human beings, we still don't have the ability to cure the common cold, much less raise people from the grave. We don't have the power to give life to inanimate pieces of protein and form it into DNA that gives life to beings. We can clone cells that already have life, 
But we can't give life to anyone or to anything as human beings. Because only God can do that. I remember as a medic in Iraq, uh, people would come in, and uh, we were at a level two trauma center. And usually people would come to us very close to dying. And I remember working on people and just feeling their, their lifeless bodies. They're, they're cold. They're, their skin is ashen and, and gray. There's no pulse. There's no breathing. There's no, the spark isn't in their eyes. And I remember some of my fellow soldiers standing behind me as they watched their battle buddy pass. And they would say, can't you do something? Can't you do anything? What, else, what haven't you tried? No, there's, there's nothing I can do. I'm not God. The doctor, he's not God. The surgeon, he's not God. This is a dead man. I can't give life to a dead man. You know, your Bible opens with darkness. There's nothing. But then God speaks and light comes into existence. There's no matter. But then he speaks and matter comes into existence. He speaks everything into existence. And then... At the apex of creation, at the highest point, at the crescendo of the symphony of creation, God takes some dust from the ground and he breathes life into it and makes human beings. God is the author of life. Later in Jesus' ministry, a man named Lazarus will die and he will lie in the tomb for several days until Jesus gets to him. And then Jesus, by the mere power of his word, calls Lazarus from the tomb and gives him life. And then finally, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he will die. And God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, will raise him from the grave. God the Father, by the power of God the Spirit, raises God the Son from death. But did you know that that same power, the power that raised this little girl in this story from the grave, the power that raises Lazarus from the grave, the power that raises Jesus Christ from the grave, did you know that that same power is in you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Now that power is not in us so that we can work miracles. That power is at work in us because the same power that raised Christ from the dead raised us from the spiritual grave. Look at Ephesians 1.19. Ephesians 1.19. Paul is praying here that the Ephesians would understand this power. And he says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. So Paul says, I want you to understand the power that's at work in you. Well, what kind of power is it? It's the power that raised Christ from the grave. But then just a few verses later, in chapter 2, Paul says that Jesus Christ is not the only dead one. He says that you were dead. That I was dead. Well, we weren't dead physically. We were dead in a way that was much more serious. We were dead spiritually. Reading in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
You were dead like Jesus Christ was dead, fully dead because of your sin. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, brothers and sisters, God has the power to give life. And the way that you can know that is because if you are a Christian, you were dead. But God has given you life in his Son, Jesus Christ. And the the most profound thing about this is that he loves us while we were yet his enemies. But consider Jesus in today's text. He's not merely trying to show off his powers like some teenager who gets bitten by a radioactive spider. There's something you should know about Jesus as you watch him raise this little girl from the dead. It's that only God can give life. So what does that tell you about Jesus? I can imagine Jesus sitting down on the bed next to this little dead girl. I can imagine her grabbing her by the hand and saying, little girl, it's time to get up. In the same way that I walk up to Patience's bed in the morning when she has to get up for school and I rub her on the back and I say, Patience, baby, it's time to get up. When I picture it, I'm I'm struck by the gentle yet all-powerful love of Christ. Brothers and sisters, that gentle and all-powerful love of Christ is what has raised us from the grave. And if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, that gentle and all-powerful love of Christ is calling out to you. Arise, O sleeper, and awake from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray.